This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Brooke Schlappi, who is at Aurora Healthcare in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hi, Brooke. Hi, Pedro. Thank you so much for having me. So, Brooke, uh, the podcast is going to be on a very important study that is uh, published in Gynecologic Oncology titled uh, Multicenter Study Comparing Oncologic Outcomes After Lymph Node Assessment via Central Lymph Node Algorithm versus the Comprehensive Pelvic and Periodic Lymphadenectomy in Patients with Serous and Clear Cell Endometrial Carcinoma. And I, I understand this is work from when you were at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering and also a collaboration with the, uh, with the Mayo Clinic. So congratulations on, on this important publication. And, uh, Thank you. And certainly, I mean, obviously, this is a topic that is uh, significant relevance. Um, should we do just the sentinel lymph nodes or still proceed with a full lymphadenectomy, and particularly in these patients with high-risk endometrial cancer? So one of the things I wanted to start with is just to for you to share with us like some of the background details regarding this particular topic. Why is this relevant to the field of gynecologic oncology? And again, specifically as to from your perspective, why did you look at uh, these types of tumors, the serous uh, carcinomas and the clear cell carcinoma? Sure. So um, lymph node assessment in general is an important part of endometrial cancer staging. However, given the morbidity of a comprehensive lymphadenectomy, there has historically been some discussion about which patients would benefit from a lymphadenectomy and which patients had such a low risk of nodal metastases that the risk of morbidity from the lymphadenectomy outweighed the prognostic benefit. Um, the sentinel lymph node algorithm um, presents a nice balance between obtaining the prognostic information necessary but limiting the morbidity of the procedure. Um, serous and clear cell carcinomas have a high rate of nodal metastases, um, even in non-invasive and minimally invasive cases. And so basing the decision for lymphadenectomy on something like uterine features is inappropriate in these cases. Um, we chose specifically to evaluate um, sentinel lymph node um, assessment or algorithm in um, these serous and clear cell cases um, because most of the data on the sentinel lymph node algorithm is actually in endometrioid cases. So specifically, uh, and I actually that brings up a, a very good point because, uh, you know, particularly internationally, um, we're often asked, well, you know, for these high-risk patients, uh, are you comfortable just doing the sentinel lymph node uh, algorithm? So if you can clarify for the audience as to whether central lymph node alone in these high-risk patients, should it still be considered experimental or is it now considered part of like the standard according to the NTCM guidelines and, and what the SGO recommendations are? Sure. So the NTCN and the SGO both state that sentinel lymph node evaluation is an acceptable option for staging endometrial cancer patients. And the NCCN specifically states that it is acceptable in high-risk endometrial cancers, including serous, clear cell, and carcinosarcoma. And, uh, and Brooke, just for, for the audience, uh, those who may not be familiar with uh, what we mean when we say the sentinel lymph node algorithm, uh, can you just go over um, briefly uh, the details of that? Sure. So the idea behind the sentinel lymph node algorithm is, of course, to identify the very first lymph nodes that drain the uterus and are therefore the most likely to be involved with metastatic disease. Um, the algorithm has two components, a surgical component and a pathologic component. 
Um, the surgical component involved initial evaluation of the peritoneum and the sclerosa, as well as a collection of washing. Um, the retroperitoneum is then evaluated, and all mapped sentinel lymph nodes, um, that is the very first lymph nodes that drain the uterus, are then removed, along with any suspicious or enlarged lymph nodes, regardless of mapping. Um, if there happens to be no mapping on one side of the pelvis, then a side-specific full lymphadenectomy is performed. Um, that's the surgical component. The pathologic component then, um, the sentinel lymph nodes then undergo what we call pathologic ultra-staging. Um, so normally when a lymph node is removed in sense of pathology, that lymph node is bisected and stained with um, hematoxylin and eosin. Um, if no metastases are identified in that node, typically a non-sentinel node is then considered negative. Um, when we do pathologic ultra-staging, those sentinel nodes undergo that initial bisecting, but if no metastases are identified, then two additional sections are taken. They're stained um, with the same atony as well as cytokeratins. Great. So now to the objective of the study. What was the primary objective when you um, designed the study? Uh, the primary objective of our study was to compare recurrence-free and overall survival in patients with clinically uterine-confined serous or clear cell endometrial cancer who underwent staging using either a sentinel lymph node algorithm or a comprehensive lymphadenectomy. And, and Brooke, with your, pertaining to the, to the study design, um, tell, tell us a little bit about that, that time frame of the study, some of the inclusion, exclusion criteria, and, and a little bit about the differences in terms of the approach to the assessment of lymph nodes in the Mayo Clinic as opposed to the uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. Sure. Um, so this was a, um, a retrospective cohort study um, that involved um, endometrial cancer databases from the two institutions that you mentioned, the Mayo Clinic and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Um, the Mayo Clinic database um, available represented years 2004 through 2008, and the Memorial Sloan Kettering database that was available represented years 2006 through 2013. Um, during these time periods, the only difference in surgical evaluation between these two institutions um, was in their lymph node assessment technique. So the Mayo Clinic cohort underwent a full lymphadenectomy to the renal veins, whereas the Memorial Sloan Kettering cohort underwent lymph node evaluation using the sentinel lymph node algorithm. Um, with regards to inclusion and um, exclusion criteria, patients were included if they had a serous or a clear cell endometrial cancer, had undergone surgical staging at one of these two institutions during these time periods, and had no obvious extra uterine disease, um, either on preoperative imaging or at the time of surgical staging. And then any patients with stage four disease were excluded. So what did you find? What were the main findings? And, and particularly I'm interested also in, uh, if you can speak about the, the median number of lymph nodes uh, removed and, and uh, also the, the rate of positive lymph nodes in each group. Mm -hmm. So the main finding of our study was that there was no difference in recurrence-free survival or overall survival between the two cohorts. Um, when we evaluated only patients with either negative or unassessed lymph nodes, patients in the sentinel lymph node cohort did have a shorter recurrence-free survival with a p-value of 0.05, um, while there remained no difference in overall survival. Um, we did have some patients in each cohort who did not have lymph nodes removed. Um, there were three patients, or 2.5% of the sentinel lymph node cohort, and 13 patients, or 13.5% of the lymph node dissection cohort, who did not have any lymph nodes removed. Um, 
With regards to number of lymph nodes removed in each group, uh, the median number of pelvic lymph nodes removed in the sentinel lymph node cohort was 11, compared to 30 in the lymphadenectomy cohort. Um, and then the median number of periaortic lymph nodes removed in the sentinel node cohort, excuse me, was four, and the median number of periaortic nodes uh, removed in the lymphadenectomy cohort was 17. Um, nodal positivity, despite the differences in the number of lymph nodes removed, uh, was not different between the two groups, with 29% of each cohort having positive lymph nodes. Yeah, so that's actually really important to highlight that there was no difference in the, in the detection of nodal positivity between just a sentinel lymph node versus the full lymphadenectomy approach. So that, mm -hmm. that brings me, you mentioned also about the uh, periodic lymph nodes and, and brings me to the point that obviously one of the main concerns that m many might have is obviously this is a high-risk population. So mm -hmm. what was the rate of positive lymph nodes in the periodic area? Mm -hmm. So um, that actually didn't was not statistically different either. So um, while there were fewer periodic nodes, excuse me, removed in the sentinel node cohort, the rate um, of uh, positive periodic lymph nodes in the sentinel node cohort was 7.6% compared to 11.5% in the lymph node dissection cohort, and that p-value was 0.34. I see. And Brooke, another thing was also, and I'm always interested in when, when comparing two groups is, uh, you know, are we really comparing groups that are equal? And one of the things that I noticed was that the adjuvant therapy uh, was administered to 84% of patients in the sentinel lymph node group and to 40% of patients in the lymphadenectomy group. Uh, why, why do you think this might have been the case and, and how could this have impacted the results of the study? Mm -hmm. um, that's definitely a, a good point, and certainly this is a potential confounding factor, and you would expect that the addition of adjuvant therapy would improve um, survival. You know, interestingly, we did include this variable on our univariate and multivariate analysis when we evaluated the study population as a whole, as well as um, only those with negative lymph nodes. And we found actually that adjuvant therapy was not associated with either recurrence-free survival or overall survival. Um, I think the difference um, in adjuvant um, therapy rates is due to the different practice patterns between these two institutions during the timeframes that were studied. I see. And, and one finding that I found was also very interesting was that uh, recurrence-free survival in the no negative subgroup was significantly worse in patients mm -hmm. in the sentinel lymph node only group. Why, why do you think this might have been the case? And, and, uh, and I'm also interested also in the differences in surveillance between the two groups. Mm -hmm. I suspect um, this difference is due to differences in surveillance, just as you mentioned, between the two groups. In the sentinel node cohort, the practice was to obtain a routine CT scan um, for surveillance, whereas in the lymph node dissection cohort, CT scans were performed at the treating physician's discretion. I see. Um, so obviously, I mean, th this is very impacting message that uh, sentinel lymph node mapping seems to be equivalent to full lymphadenectomy in patients with um, high-risk histology endometrial cancer. But obviously, some will say, well, there must be some limitations to the study. What, what, what would you say are the, some of the limitations of the primary mm -hmm. author? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, every study has limitations in retrospective cohort studies. Um, uh, certainly have have a number of them. So 
Um, you know, a few of ours, it was a relatively small study with only 118 patients in the sentinel lymph node cohort and 96 in the lymph node dissection cohort. Um, our follow-up period was somewhat limited with a median follow-up of 2.3 years in the sentinel node cohort and uh, 3.2 years in the lymph node dissection cohort. Um, we also weren't able, being a retrospective study, we weren't able to control for potential confounding of the um, learning curve associated with the sentinel node technique. And finally, we did not assess um, either perioperative or long-term adverse effects with either intervention or the morbidity associated with treatment as a whole. So Brooke, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here because, you know, obviously we've been, we've been speaking about the sentinel lymph node um, algorithm and, and, uh, and certainly the equivalency to a full lymphadenectomy. But there are always those who will say, well, you know, lymphadenectomy is not only diagnostic, but it's also therapeutic. And I think that, you know, that, that argument is getting uh, much rarer these days. But, mm -hmm. you know, we still hear that in conferences say, well, you mm -hmm. know, the more lymph nodes you remove has got to be better. Right. Um, so, you know, to those that, that still argue that, I would argue that the data which supports this are retrospective studies which do not utilize the sentinel lymph node um, technique or algorithm. And as such, then removing more lymph nodes would be beneficial because it would increase the likelihood of removing the involved lymph node and therefore upstaging the patient. Um, there are a number of publications, particularly randomized trials, uh, which do not support lymphadenectomy as being therapeutic. Um, for instance, the Aztec trial is a randomized trial which did not demonstrate a survival benefit of lymphadenectomy, although admittedly serous and clear cell histology accounted for only 11% of the study population, and of course there were other um, issues with that, with that trial. Um, Portec-3 um, also did not mandate a lymphadenectomy with only 58% in each group having some form of lymph node sampling, and they found on multivariate analysis that lymphadenectomy was not associated with failure-free survival. Um, and then Dr. Moltenew, as part of a collaboration between the Mayo Clinic and Memorial Sloan Kettering, um, recently published a paper utilizing the same databases used in this study, um, but he compared the sentinel lymph node technique to a full lymph node dissection in patients with high-risk disease and specifically those with positive lymph nodes. Um, and in that study, we found no difference in progression-free survival between the cohorts and specifically no difference in nodal recurrences. And you mentioned the, uh, the portrait three and, um, and uh, another recent uh, landmark study, the DT58. Um, how do these high-risk tumors fit into the schema of how we should treat these patients today? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, you know, I guess a little background on the two studies. Portec-3 um, was a randomized trial which compared adjuvant whole pelvic radiation to whole pelvic radiation with the addition of cisplatin followed by four cycles of carboplatin and paclitaxel in patients with stage 1 through 3 endometrial cancer. Um, the stage 1 patients had to have either serous or clear cell histology or be high-grade endometrioid. Um, the primary endpoints of that study were overall survival and failure-free survival. Um, serous and clear cell carcinoma accounted for 25% of their population. Um, in that study, they found no difference in overall survival, but um, they did see improved failure-free survival with the addition of chemotherapy. Um, for the serous subgroup specifically, the failure-free survival was 58% in the chemo-radiotherapy group versus 48% in the radiotherapy group alone, although this did not reach statistical significance. 
um, GOG258 was another randomized trial comparing whole pelvic radiation with cisplatin, followed by four cycles of carboplatin and paclitaxel, um, to just six cycles of carboplatin and paclitaxel without radiation in patients with stage 3 and 4 endometrial cancer of any histologic type and stage 1 and 2 serous and clear cell carcinoma cancers with positive washing. Um, the primary outcome of that study was relapse-free survival, and serous and clear cell carcinoma cases accounted for approximately 20% of that study. Um, they found no difference in relapse-free survival. They did not specifically report relapse-free survival for the serous and clear cell cases, but did state that there is no difference um, in this subgroup. And the forest plot in their um, publication demonstrates this as well. Um, you know, I think it's tough, given that these tumors are rare and in these large randomized trials only account for approximately 20 to 25 percent of the population. I think it's difficult to draw um, definitive conclusions on how to um, treat these patients. You know, I think the evidence from these trials supports the previously published retrospective data, which demonstrates improved survival with a combination of both chemotherapy and radiation. But I think um, the best regimen for these rare tumors is still to be determined. And, and Brooke, I, I'm pretty sure you sort of expected uh, this type of question from, from <laughs> me. And I was interested in whether you had evaluated the number of patients in each group that underwent minimally invasive surgery versus open surgery, and could this have impacted the results of your study? Um, I did expect a question like this from you. <laughs> um, so we did not specifically evaluate minimally invasive versus open surgery. Um, we did not feel it was likely to impact the results of our study, given the previously published results of the GOGLAP2 trial, um, demonstrating no inferior survival outcomes with minimally invasive surgery. So now, Brooke, um, what have you learned from doing this work, and, and what additional comments uh, would you have for our audience with regards to how do we take this information to our day-to-day -day practice? Yeah. You know, I believe this work adds to the growing body of literature regarding the utility and safety of sentinel lymph node assessment, even in these high-risk endometrial histologies. Um, certainly, this work has taught me the benefits of multi-institutional collaboration, uh, particularly for rare diseases. Um, you know, serous and clear cell endometrial cancers uh, continue to have worse survival compared to endometrial cancers despite adjuvant chemotherapy and radiation. And so I think we need to continue working to find ways to improve outcomes in these subtypes. Brooke, I want to thank you first for your publication. I really learned a lot reading it. I want to thank you for your time and, and the contributions you're making to gynecologic oncology. It's really been a pleasure. Great. Thank you so much, Pedro. Thanks for having me.